Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I am Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Today we're going to continue on with part two of our episode on Jane Addams. Uh, Jane Addams was just an astounding leader and advocate, especially for the working poor. But a lot of her work uh, really boiled down to building progress and a better quality of life for everyone. And as we talked about in the previous episode, she helped found Hull House, which gradually added activism and advocacy to its overall mission of helping to improve the lives of immigrants and the working poor in Chicago. But Jane herself also held a number of positions and spearheaded all kinds of social reforms during her life. And while much of this work led to her being one of America's most beloved progressive leaders, her anti-war work before and during World War I also drew lots of scorn and ire. So in this episode, we're going to talk about her achievements that weren't quite so directly tied to Hull House. And some of the more recent scholarship on Jane Addams has actually focused on her work as a philosopher. Uh, until the 1990s, most of the writing about philosophy in the progressive era really focused on John Dewey and William James and other men, while Jane was viewed more as the practical arm of their philosophical concepts. But more recent scholarship about her writings has really approached her as a philosopher in her own right. Hers was a pragmatist approach, combining feminism and social improvement, and always relying on a cooperative effort. When you look at the overwhelming number of positions that she held, and all the awards and recognitions that she received, and all the work that she did, it can seem deceptively like, in order to do all of this, she would have had to just take the bull by its horns and strong-arm people into agreeing with her. But in fact, in virtually all of her dealings, Jane really worked as a peacemaker. She was a mediator and an advocate. She would speak stridently and sometimes aggressively about conditions that she wanted to change. But when it came to actually working to make those changes, she would really focus first on the places where her views overlapped with her opponents. This is the smartest way to approach conflict I have ever heard of. I know. Um, (laughs) It made her a hugely effective advocate for incremental and gradual change that was acceptable for everyone involved. And according to her theory, it really could make a real lasting change. Key parts of this philosophy related to people taking an active part in democracy and changing their own circumstances. So it was... While she she did make some big changes in her life, this was not a case of, like, getting in someone's face and screaming at them. It was a case of finding common ground and working from there. It was kind of like slow burn reform. Yeah. She really felt like if we are going to have this change last, we have to take little steps. That we all agree on. That we all agree on and do it slowly. Uh, And the fact that she was able to convince people to do as many things as they did, that just, I find that to be remarkable. So apart from Hull House uh, and her founding of it, what else did she work on, Tracy? Well, let's start in 1895 when she became garbage inspector for the 19th Ward in the near west side. So she had been concerned about how disgusting the neighborhood was. I do not mean that to be disparaging to the neighborhood. It was full of rats and garbage. It literally had a trash problem. Yeah. yeah. And and she had uh, applied to be a trash remover, you know, a garbage collector. And 
uh, Hull House actually had its own garbage incinerator installed because the trash problem in the neighborhood was so bad. Um, the city elected not to hire her as a garbage collector, but she pursued this garbage inspector post. And once she was in it, she took big strides to make sure that the garbage was collected regularly and safely and then disposed of properly. Then in 1902, Mary Kenny O'Sullivan, who had been a Hull House resident, teamed up with William English Walling to form the Women's Trade Union League. And at the time, women could not join the American Federation of Labor. So the Women's Trade Union League formed to fight for issues like better pay and working conditions and women's suffrage. And Jane Addams served as the first vice president of that organization. In 1905, she was appointed to Chicago's Board of Education and became chair of the School Management Committee. She served on the Board of Education for four years. And this is actually a situation where her path of finding a middle ground really put her at odds with some of the people she was advocating for. Uh, Her position on teacher pay was that they should find a compromise, but teacher's pay was already extremely low. So a lot of teachers felt like she was not doing enough and that her effort to reach a compromise was a cop-out. In... 1909, the NAACP was founded. We mentioned that in the previous podcast briefly. Uh, and it was in part as a response to a race riot in Springfield, Illinois, the year before. Uh, the NAACP's founders and first members included an interracial mix of leaders and activists. And their goal was to ensure that all people actually had the rights that were spelled out in the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. And to end racial discrimination. And Jane Addams was one of the people who helped found that organization. That same year, she became the first woman president of the National Conference of Charities and Corrections, which later became the National Conference of Social Work. This was one of the many things that led to Jane Addams being thought of as the mother of social work. And another part of it was that she worked with the faculty at the University of Chicago to help found a school of social work there. Hull House in Chicago became known as sort of the birthplace for social work as a profession in America. And the world of social work was not just to study social conditions as sociology does, but to actually work through or work toward better conditions for people, either as an advocate or by working with individual people to try to make their situation better. In 1910, the Chicago garment workers went on strike to protest the low wages and poor working conditions that they were living with. And this followed the implementation of a new bonus system, which was viewed as pretty arbitrary and uh, prone to favoritism and a drop in the, quote, peace rate that workers were paid for each item that they finished. At the same time, the people who could sew the fastest were made pacemakers, and that was the bar that everyone else struggled to reach. This strike started with just 16 women, but in the end, 41,000 workers were on strike. And Jane was one of the mediators of the strike, along with Ellen Gates Starr and several other residents of Hull House. As a side note, while striking workers are often uh, get, a, get a lot of disparagement, in the media today, public sentiment was really on the side of these workers and families, doctors, pharmacies, grocery stores, all kinds of people and businesses were donating to the striking workers to make sure they could keep going while they were not being paid for work. In 1912, Theodore Roosevelt formed the Progressive Party, also known as the Bull Moose Party, and ran for president on its ticket. 
The Progressive Party's platform drew pretty heavily from the National Conference of Charities and Corrections Social Standards for Industry, which outlined things like eight-hour workdays, improvement of housing conditions, prohibition of child labor, and a federal system of accident and unemployment insurance, among other things, all of which are very familiar to us today, but did not really exist at the time. No, it's... uh hard to imagine that. Yes. And how scary and difficult it must have been as a laborer. Well, and this is a, an episode of, I, I know that there are many people who are opposed to some of the things that Jane was fighting for today. But when you look at the world that exists today versus the world that was existing around the turn of the century, like we were going from zero protections yeah. to <laughs> some protections yeah, context is key there. Yeah. Uh, and Jane actually seconded Roosevelt's nomination at the Progressive Party Convention. She hadn't really uh, allied herself politically with anybody before. She had focused on individual issues instead of political campaigns. Uh, and she had to do this even though she fundamentally disagreed with some of Roosevelt's politics, like his love of big business and his um, some explicitly racist comments. Uh, Woodrow Wilson actually won the election, though. Yeah. So even though he ran and she seconded his nomination, he did not win that election. And it's good to point out that even though she opposed some of his positions, it kind of really fundamentally goes back to her idea of finding some overlap of common ground yeah. and belief compatibility. Yeah, it was definitely a, a like an ethically difficult time for her. She, she was like she wanted to work toward the greater good, but that meant that she had to kind of make peace with some things that she did find really upsetting. Yeah. In 1920, she helped found the ACLU. She also worked really extensively for women's suffrage, serving as the first vice president of the National American Women's Suffrage Association. And in 1913, she spoke at the Seventh Congress of the International Alliance of Women for Suffrage and Equal Citizenship, which took place in Budapest, Hungary. And uh, it's probably no surprise when we say that Jane Addams was really a pacifist. Uh, when World War I started, she became an activist for peace. The same approach she had taken to all of her other social works, one of mediating and finding common ground, was part of the foundation of her pacifism. She wanted the warring nations to negotiate and find common ground rather than fighting with each other. But she also thought the entire idea of war was regressive. It was going to lower the quality of life around the world and effectively put a stop to progress for years to come. She helped found the Women's Peace Party in 1915, and she served as its first chair. She also presided over the International Congress of Women at The Hague, Netherlands, in 1915. Also known as the Women's Peace Congress, this brought together 1,200 delegates from 12 countries to try to encourage world peace and end World War I. This is actually, uh, from today's eye, there's kind of a weirdly gendered aspect to all this. Part of the idea was that if all of these women came together, surely they would have a civilizing influence on all of these men. But at the same time, there was also a lot of actual practical discussion about ways for peace and ways to have strategies to to end war. Following that, in 1919, she founded the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom and served as president from 1919 to 1929. She spoke extensively against the entry of the United States into World War I. Uh, she tried very arduously to convince President Woodrow Wilson to negotiate a peace agreement with the other countries instead of going to war. This was vastly, vastly unpopular. 
uh, as a result of her anti-war work, she was expelled from the Daughters of the American Revolution, and she was branded as a dangerous radical in the media and the government. This is when, as we referred to in the introduction to the previous episode, J. Edgar Hoover called her one of the most dangerous women in America. Uh, she and Theodore Roosevelt, who had previously been pretty much allies, became pretty bitterly opposed to each other, with Roosevelt calling her a bull mouse. That's a, an insult to keep in your pocket. In 1912, in the words of the Philadelphia North American, Jane was, quote, probably the most widely beloved of her sex in all the world. But by the time the war was underway, the media really painted her as a foolish and idealistic radical. And she, who had once been so adored, had become the subject of derision, scorn, and even suspicion. And this really went on until after the war was over. Uh, but in spite of that, in spite of how much flack she was taking for it, international peace really continued to be a primary focus of her activism. She still ran Hull House, but she also traveled and lectured extensively on the subject of international peace and cooperation. Then gradually, uh, as the world started to recover from the war, the United States started to soften toward her and view her favorably again. And she received the Nobel Peace Prize in 1931, although she could not be present to receive it as she was in the hospital. Uh, She was the first American woman and the second woman ever to receive that prize. This is from the Nobel Prize speech, which was given by Nobel Committee member Halvdan Kolt. Twice in my life, once more than 20 years ago, and now again this year, I've had the pleasure of visiting the institution where she has been carrying on her life work. In the poorest districts of Chicago, among Polish, Italian, Mexican, and other immigrants, she's established and maintained the vast social organization centered in Hull House. Here, young and old alike... In fact, all who ask receive a helping hand, whether they wish to educate themselves or to find work. When you find Miss Adams here, be it in meeting room, in workroom, or dining room, you immediately become poignantly aware that she has built a home, and in it is a mother to one and all. She is not one to talk much, but her quiet, great-hearted personality inspires confidence and creates an atmosphere of goodwill, which instinctively brings out the best in everyone. From the social work often carried on among people of different nationalities. It was, for her, only a natural step to the cause of peace. She has now been its faithful spokesman for nearly a quarter of a century. Little by little, through no attempt to draw attention by her work, but simply through the patient self-sacrifice and quiet ardor which she devoted to it, she won an eminent place in the love and esteem of her people. She became the leading woman in the nation, one might say its leading citizen. Consequently, The fact that she took a stand for the ideal of peace was of special significance. Since millions of men and women looked up to her, she could give new strength to that ideal among American people. And when the need became more pressing than ever, she inspired American women to work for peace on an international level. We shall always remember, as one of the finest and most promising events during the last great war, the gathering of women from all over the world even from enemy countries, who met to discuss and pursue common action for world peace. It was a rather lengthy quote, but I could not find any part of it (laughs) that I wanted to leave out. Yeah, I mean, it's a really... Granted, speeches about people are supposed to be tributes in most cases, but it's a really lovely one, and it really points out the hard work she did her entire life. Yes. In a really beautiful way. Uh, and unfortunately, Jane had a heart attack in 1926. 
And after that, she really never regained her health. Um, she continued to kind of struggle with her health for the rest of her life. And uh, she gradually handed over her duties at Hull House and other organizations to other people. By the time the Great Depression started in, in 1929, she was much less of a public social presence than she had been during prior economic turmoil. She died on May 21st of 1935, following an operation she had had three days before, which revealed that she had cancer. And this was about a year after the death of Mary Rosette Smith. Uh, at this point, Mary and Jane had been companions for 30 years, and people ha- had wondered how Jane was going to survive without Mary. Today, there are schools, peace organizations, social work organizations, and neighborhood centers that are named for Jane Adams. Part of I-90 in Illinois was also named in her honor in 2007. In 2008, Jane was inducted into the Chicago Gay and Lesbian Hall of Fame, explaining that it was, quote, time for Chicago's LGBT communities to claim Adams as one of our own. I feel pretty conflicted about that. Yeah. You and I have been discussing, uh, as, as preparing this podcast, how problematic the concept of declaring someone to have a particular sexual orientation after their death can be. Yeah, I mean, I understand the impulse to, you know, if you look at sort of the circumstantial evidence, it is easy to make that logical step. Yes, we definitely know that she had long and committed and loving relationships, uh, especially with Mary. And then also she and Ellen Gates Starr traveled and were companions together for a while. Yeah, and I, I understand it, but then if it was something she never felt compelled to bring out publicly, and granted there is the element of time and when things have and have not been more and less acceptable, uh, but I, it's still tricky to to do that for her. Right. It's not something that she wrote about or that Ellen or Mary wrote about in any of their journals. Yeah, so it's... Uh, like as you said, it's a little conflicting. I I completely understand the impulse to want to um, include her in your group because she's an amazing woman. Uh, but yeah, it's not something that was ever part of her identity publicly mm-hmm. uh, that she shared. So I, it's tricky. Yeah, yeah. I am I am reluctant to posthumously assign someone a sexual orientation. Yeah, I think I said that before. Yeah, do though. I love Jane Addams, though. Oh, she's amazing. You know, my mom was a social worker. I did not know that. Yeah. No, she was a social worker and also a teacher. I knew she had been a teacher. She was a teacher for developmentally disabled adults. I think your mom is probably quite remarkable. Because you have to be to do that I job. <laughs> my mom had some jobs that were simultaneously fulfilling and thankless. Yeah. So I greatly admire, respect her. And all other social workers. Yeah. Thank you, social workers, for what you do. That can be an emotionally exhausting and low-paying and difficult job that can do a lot of good. Mm-hmm. I get emotionally exhausted just talking about it. <laughs> I do. I get, like, choked up. Yeah. Because uh, it's it's huge and really impactful. So thank you for all of you that do that work. Thank you very much. And do you also have listener mail? I do. This is from Margaret, and Margaret wrote to us about our episode on Selman Waxman and the tuberculosis cure. So Margaret says, Dear Tracy and Holly, I love your podcast and listen all the time. I have one small correction from your podcast on Selman Waxman. While both Emily and Anne Bronte died of tuberculosis, Charlotte Bronte is believed to have died of hyperemesis gravidarum. 
which is excessive, persistent vomiting and nausea, which can linger for an entire pregnancy. And then she links to a source. She says this condition was recently in the news when the Duchess of Cambridge was hospitalized with related extreme, quote, morning sickness. I have a friend who suffered this during her pregnancy, and it is a truly awful condition that can be life-threatening to both baby and mother. Thanks for the many hours of enjoyment. Keep up the great work. And then knowing that we are sticklers, I'm sure, for details and things. Uh, she says there are also more reputable sources for this, but she didn't, she didn't clearly have access to a scholarly article database. So thank you, Margaret. And then I went searching for scholarly articles. Yes, you do. Yeah, I was very intrigued by this idea. Um, what I learned is that Charlotte Bronte's death certificate lists her cause of death as thysis, which is another word for tuberculosis. Um, and a professor of obstetrics and gynecology named Philip Rhodes in 1972 theorized that she had died actually of hyperemesis gravidarum. Um, so the, the long-deceased person's theorizing of how they have died. Yeah. Uh, it's a common thing nowadays. Well, um, especially because uh, in a lot of cases, TV got kind of blamed for things that were hard to identify as yeah. other things. And she was definitely pregnant when she passed away. And she had definitely been writing in her journal about just how, how terribly ill that she was. Yeah. Um, at the same time, there had been at least, uh, other than her sisters who had died of tuberculosis, there had been someone in working in her household recently who had also died of tuberculosis. So it seems that there are several medical things that could have been going on at the same time. So, thank you, Margaret, for writing to us because it inspired me to go look up all this more stuff about morning sickness. And Charlotte Bronte, who I love. I love her. I love Jane Eyre. Who doesn't? I don't know. I'm sure there are people. There are tons of people. So, yes. Oh, it's fun stuff. If you would like to write to us about social work or morning sickness or maybe not morning sickness, but social work. If you want. I mean, we might, we will empathize with you. No one's stopping you. (laughs) But if we we get an inbox full, if we get as many morning sickness stories as we have cat pictures, I might be very distressed. Um, but if you would like to write to us about anything you can, we are at historypodcast.discovery.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash historyclassstuff and on Twitter at History. Our Tumblr is at mistinhistory.tumblr.com and we're pinning many things about our episodes on Pinterest. If you would like to learn more about some of the things that Jane Addams uh, advocated and fought for, there are so many things you can search at our website. Some examples are strikes for how strikes work and unions for how labor unions work. You can learn about all of that and a whole lot more at our website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Audible.com is the leading provider of downloadable digital audiobooks and spoken word entertainment. Audible has more than 100,000 titles to choose from to be downloaded to your iPod or MP3 player. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash history to get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today.